can be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning is found in in the Psalms, Psalm 133. And then our New Testament reading and text for this morning's sermon is found in the book of Titus, chapter 3. Read the whole of chapter three. It's a brief, it's a brief chapter for context, but the text for the sermon will focus on verses nine through fifteen as we come to uh, an end of our study of this epistle to, to Titus. So first of all, our Old Testament reading Psalm one hundred thirty-three, which of course is in the Songs of Ascents, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And then our New Testament reading Uh, Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show profound courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word and for the reading and the hearing of it itself, a means of grace. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work of illumination to what we've just heard read. Now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word. You have ordained and established that in the assembly, in worship, your word will be preached. You've called men to this task. You equip them and give them your Holy Spirit. You set them apart by the laying on of your hands to this task. And yet we are men who are earthen jars. We are men with feet of clay. We are men who are sinners, just as those are sinners to whom we preach. And yet... You bring glory to yourself by filling such earthen jars with treasure, especially in the preaching of the word. Lord, grant unction and the strength of your Holy Spirit to your servant, that you might be glorified, your people edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But we're coming to the end of this study of the book of Titus, and I will remind you of of why we began this study uh, some months ago. Uh, It's a short epistle, but it's a short epistle that speaks to the issue of what we're doing here, which is planting a church. Uh, It's one of the pastoral epistles, so there's much about the doctrine of the church that we find in this particular epistle uh, as we read it. Um, and as you look at what we do in a mission work, especially a mission work that's been eagerly seeking the Lord's face and the labors through the labors of our search committee uh, for the Lord to bring to us an organizing pastor and an evangelist, when we look at Titus, step back and look at him and his ministry in the island of Crete, it most mirrors what our church planter will do when he is here. And so I believed it profitable in preparation for his coming. But like I've also said, the epistle moves beyond that. We see that Titus' mission was to set in order the things that remained, in particular through the appointing of elders in the churches that are there. And our Titus, when he comes, will do that here. And through his labors, the Lord will raise up men from among you who will serve as elders in this church. And when that time comes, then this church will be organized as its own separate congregation within the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So there's great application uh, of this epistle to the circumstances here at Peninsula uh, Reformed. As we come to chapter 3, which uh, a month ago I looked at the first half of this. I summarize this chapter under really two headings, one sermon each. One is living life before the world and then living life before the church. And I would remind those who were here that in living the life of the Christian life, the church living the Christian life before the world, it begins by saying, submit yourself to rulers and authorities. That would have really been a good text for today. But in God's providence, that was the text last month. But then if we summarize what's left in that paragraph about living life before the world, I think it can be summarized under one word, and that is to be kind. 
that we're to live our lives before a world, even a world that oftentimes executes us and is at enmity with us. We are to live our lives before the world in kindness because God has been kind to us and the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. His kindness has been extended to us and the mercy that he offers us through the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our demeanor as we live our lives in the world, even in the midst of hostilities, is to be one of kindness. This is what Paul is instructing through Titus. But then the text turns to, well, how are we to live the life in the church itself? And I want to back up just one verse and as we, as we come to, ch- to, to verse 9 to look at the instruction about living life in the church, where, where Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's a prominent theme in chapter 3, that we are to be devoted to, to, to good works. Then he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people, both as we live our lives in the world, but also as we live our lives in the church. That is, that we are to perform good works within the church as well. This verse is sort of a transition verse between living before the world and living in the church itself. And this is profitable when we walk in good works, both in the world, but also in the church. But then by contrast, this is how we're not to live with each other in the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. That is, avoid arguing and debating over things that aren't important. Now, this is hardly a warning to people that are in OPC or PCA churches. We never, ever, ever find ourselves arguing about things that are not of consequence. Now, we do. We find ourselves falling into this very trap. And sometimes I've wrestled with, why is it that we struggle with this? And sometimes our brothers and sisters that are more broader evangelical churches just seem to shrug their shoulders about things that we take exceedingly seriously. And I think part of it is, is that we care about the truth. And we care about the truth. And for those who were in Sunday school, we read from Jude that we're to contend for the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Those are our marching orders. We are zealous for the truth. And so we tend to be zealous about everything. The question is measure. Where are we to be zealous? And where are we not to be caught up in these controversies that occur uh, within the church. And, and, and recognize this. Satan's desire is to destroy the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, to destroy his church. He has his tactics. One of his major tactics is to infiltrate the church with false teaching. He began in the Garden of Eden doing precisely that in the church that was in Eden when he introduced false teaching and lies to the woman and the husband overheard. But also he tries to divide us by 
controversies that should not matter that much. In other words, Satan wants to foment within the church discord. And he's a master at it. Of course, here's part of the problem. What one person may deem is, well, this is not essential, this is not that significant. We certainly shouldn't be arguing or debating or quarreling over this. Uh, For someone who's pushing that argument, it may be something that... We have to have wisdom in knowing which is. Where do we contend for the faith? And, and, And where do we let go? I think also demeanor is involved in this as well. What things are important? One of the things we need to recognize, we live in the world and we live in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see our culture collapsing all around us. And people as old as as Chuck, Pete, and I, we, we would have never dreamed that we would be in the estate that we're in. Uh, when we were younger. Even those of you much younger have seen a tremendous collapse, even within some of your children in your lifetime around us. Those things can't help but impact the church of the Lord Jesus Christ either. And, and, And no church is safe. The OPC is not safe from these kinds of things when they come. And so we have to be mindful. We have to be watchful. One of the things that I've observed, uh, the PCA, our sister denomination, just had a significant general assembly, and I don't know a whole lot of what happened. I've heard some things that are hopeful and encouraging to me from what happened at general assembly, but I haven't heard a full analysis. But uh, a couple of weeks prior to that, the Southern Baptists had their convention, and there there were similar concerns before this much larger, broader evangelical church in the Southern Baptist Church. And one of the things that I found interesting, especially with the Southern Baptists at that particular time, uh, are, are people that I know and love and care about that, in my opinion, seem to be putting their heads in the sand about the issues that were coming before their church. Uh, one friend of mine, he was I, I knew him when he was a, a boy, actually, and then through his high school and his college years. Great guy, a minister of the gospel, loves the Lord. And when other people are, are posting on Facebook and social media things that were taking place at, at, the, at the Southern Baptist Convention, he was posting about what happened at Vacation Bible School. <laughs> and he was posting what happened in terms of lessons that were taught to the children of the simple gospel. And, and you can see what he was saying. This is what matters. What's happening at the convention doesn't matter. Um, another one, for instance, uh, uh, that's in my family that's Southern Baptist, he says, you know, I I oppose critical theory too, but in the church it's about the gospel. I said, you're right. The church it's about the gospel. But that doesn't mean we close our eyes to, to what's going on in the culture and the philosophies that are there. We have to understand them if we are going to address them with the gospel. But then on the other hand, there are those that see the answer to these issues that are before us is addressing those issues. And those issues as if it's all here earthly, it's all here upon the earth. 
And, and so the solutions that are often offered are solutions of social action or political action or even political action within the church when, when I think the solution is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gospel is to be preached within the context of knowing the darkness that's around. And you can't hide your head in the sand on one side and on the other side not look to where the word of God looks which is to the new heavens and to the new earth to come to an age that is beyond this age and to the power to live in this age because of the power in the age to come through the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so finding sense, finding the right place as these controversies arise is, is often not a simple matter. And it's certainly not enough to say, well, none of these things matter because all that matters is John 3.16. <clears throat> when, when Paul is writing to Titus, he addresses what this looked like in, in Crete or on the island of Crete. Avoid foolish controversies. Look at the adjectives. A, a controversy that is foolish. A controversy that ends nowhere. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, if you recall what Paul said in this very same epistle earlier, when he's talking about the work of the elders, into sharper focus, these false teachings that are coming into the church and he says the elders must be ready to contend for the truth. That is, to rebuke and to correct and to keep these false teachings from coming into the life of the church. So he's not sweeping them under the rug. He's already addressed them. It's with awareness of where it is that Satan is attacking. What Satan is stirring up in terms of what people are thinking and we have to think, we have to be watchful, we have to read, we have to understand what these things are. But knowing that the answer to that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no here it's not identifying that which is harmful that's coming into the church. Paul's already said that needs to be identified and the elders need to deal with it. But here it's talking about participating in it. It's talking about participating in it. Remember, when we looked at that heresy, it's hard to see on the face of the text precisely what it is. And I told you at the time, the reason for that is Titus knew, Paul knew, Paul's writing to Titus, Paul is making assumptions, knowing what Titus knows, but we have to read between the lines to see, okay, exactly what does it look like? And what we saw is that there's a Jewish component to it and also a pagan component. Both things are there with an emphasis upon a Jewish component. And what did we do? We, we saw in the end this reduces to a philosophy or a theology that works righteousness. And that must be countered with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you see a return to that here. Foolish controversies about genealogies and dissensions, those are inherently Jewish. You might say, but, but genealogies are in the Bible. Yes, they are. 
and they have a purpose in the Bible. But no, these are controversies about genealogies. In other words, what the rabbinic tradition has done with these fanciful interpretations to genealogies and people trying to chase their genealogies back in terms to confirm themselves as sons and daughters of Abraham. But fanciful interpretations that are in the rabbinic tradition that is beyond what the scriptures are saying and teaching about genealogies. Dissensions and quarrels about the law. In other words, don't touch, don't eat, don't drink. A legalistic mindset, a legalistic application of Old Testament law that's fulfilled in Christ and abrogated in Christ Jesus. The old Judaistic controversy that's raising its head again. We saw it earlier in this epistle. We see him referring to it here now. What he's saying to you is don't get caught up in this. Don't get caught up in these arguments themselves. Go to the root of them, sever the root, and show them what the gospel is. And so often we have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills. Anybody here ever do that? Anybody here ever see it done? Again, we need to be careful. We need to be careful we don't jump and say, you're making a mountain out of a molehill, when in fact it may not be a molehill. There may be a principle underneath that that's really a mountain. So, So what does that mean? Rather than arguing as these things are coming up, we need to learn to listen. We need to remember the standard. The standard is not the rabbinic teachings about genealogies and about things regarding the law. The standard is the Word of God. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, there are controversies that are going to arise. What we must do is we must plant our feet firmly in the Word of God. And we must listen. You may be missing something. You may be missing something. You may be making assumptions that are not true. Are you willing to listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you quick to have an answer and a response? I said one reason why there's often quarreling and dissensions within our circles is because we care a lot. And we're not discerning sometimes about what are mountains and what are molehills. But it's also about demeanor. There are some among us, not here of course, you're all exempted from this, but I'll tell you, I travel around a lot and I see these things, most certainly not here, but I see these things. There are people that just like to argue. And he's about to turn to that in the text. There are people who like to argue for argument's sake because there's a a real attempt to advance the truth or to find what Scripture says, but to demonstrate I'm right and you're wrong. And so the demeanor oftentimes is, all that matters is that I pin you to the mat, that I win the debate, that I win the argument. 
when what must propel in the life of the church is not saying there aren't controversies that need to be explored, but a demeanor of listening to each other in light of the Word of God. And so if there is a difference of opinion among us, even especially a difference of opinion among matters of Scripture, and yes, those things happen, are you, when you enter into a discussion with your brother, willing to be convinced because you want Are you unwilling to let go of your opinion lest it make you look like somebody that didn't know as much as the one who is in this debate with you? What is your demeanor? And two brothers or a brother and a sister or two sisters, they need to sit down and say, let the word of God speak. Let's search it out. I am willing to repent. I'm willing to be corrected if this is what the word of God teaches If, 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 if you want to enter into and enjoy the debate because you enjoy stirring things up and you enjoy trying to demonstrate your right, you are going to impact the unity and the peace and the purity of the church. And this is to be avoided. Look at what he goes on to say as he turns that, this. As for a person who stirs up division... And, and the presumption is by arguing about things which are foolish controversies, as he's talked about before. After warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. That's church discipline. Someone who just stirs up controversy. Just someone who will not listen is someone who is always keeping something going in the life of the church. The time may come when the elders need to approach this individual and sit down and say, this is not profitable to the church. This is not in keeping with what the Word of God is saying. And then if he repents, all's well. But oftentimes this person is warped, as the text says, and will not there has to be a second warning. And here you're talking about discipline in the life of the church for the sake of the peace and the purity of the church. It's not simply about controversies. There are going to be controversies, and some of those controversies are legitimate. But it's about what is the foundation in deciding the outcome of the controversy or the differences of opinion, and that has to be the Word of God. And what is going to be the deportment of the people in the church that are engaged in a debate where they have a difference of opinion? And it should be, please, brother, convince me, and I'll believe. Convince me from the Scriptures, and I'll believe what you say. And if deportment, guess what? More likely than not, iron will sharpen iron and both will come to a better understanding of the gospel and walk together in unity. And, and this is what's at stake, is unity in the church. It, it's sweet here in this congregation. Does that mean that everybody's of the same opinion about everything? No, we're an opinionated bunch. <laughs> we're not going to agree on everything. But I see an agreeable spirit among the brothers and sisters in Christ in this, con in this congregation. 
I want to turn back to our Old Testament reading briefly. You've heard me preach it before when I was preaching through the Songs of Ascents. But just the unity of the church and how important it is. He says, Behold, is when brothers dwell in unity. It is sweet. It tastes sweet. It's wonderful. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. The picture there is of this anointing oil that was poured upon Aaron's head to consecrate him, a holy perfume and ointment that God himself gave the recipe of it to to, to, to Moses that was only used for consecration that smells sweet in the nostrils of God. So is the unity of the church. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon that towers above Mount Zion to the north. And the, the refreshing waters that come down, the dews that turn the holy land green and refreshing. That's what the unity of the church is like to us who are in the church. Beautiful picture of the unity of the church. And Satan wants to stir up controversies. But be careful that all controversies are not dismissed as having no foundation. But on the other hand, be careful to discern, is this really a controversy that is significant? And then, to show the significance of the unity of the church, I want to turn... To John chapter 17. This is the prayer that our Lord Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, after he washed his disciples' feet, after he instituted the Lord's Supper, before his arrest in Gethsemane. This is the night before he was crucified for us. And this is when he is praying. Now listen to what he says after praying, in particular for his immediate disciples, what he says when he starts to pray for you. He starts to pray for you. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that is for his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's everyone in this room. He's praying for you. This is Jesus' prayer for you that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. What Jesus prays for when he prays for us is that we be one, that we be united. That's what he prays for. The night he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, when he's praying for you, he's praying for the unity of the church. Now listen to what he says. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's how important the unity of the church is. So that the world out there, we've already seen how we're to live before the world in the first part of our chapter. So the world will know that you sent me. How will they know when you're preaching a gospel of reconciliation where men and women and children can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, how will they believe your testimony? Because they'll see you're reconciled 
to each other because you're one. That's how important the unity of the church is. I'll tell you, I'm, I've been in loads of churches, loads of mission works through my ministry. I've seen a lot. There are, there are churches that I walk in and you can cut the tension with a knife. You can cut it with a knife. Some of you have experienced that in your own experience, I'm sure. It's not good and pleasant. And when unbelievers come into that assembly, they can sense it too. And so when the pastor stands up and preaches a gospel of reconciliation to God through Christ Jesus, they'll say, but if they can't be reconciled to each other, why am I to believe their message that I can be reconciled to God through this gospel? That's how important it is. That's why confession of sin to each other, that's why quickly granting forgiveness is necessary in the life of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, and Satan knows this. So where does he try to attack? At this place right here. He will try to among us. He really hasn't that much so far in this work. He will. Are we going to be vigilant? Are we going to be ready? Are we ready to assess? Is the controversy of note? Or should it be dismissed? We have to have the Word of God to help us do that. The unity of the church is of this importance, and especially at this stage. What do we have to offer people? We don't have a building. We don't have children's programs. <laughs> you know, we don't have an active youth group. I hope we have effective preaching. We have robust singing. We did this morning. Of course, we had a little help this morning. But typically, the singing is robust. The worship, I think, is joyful here in this place. We have how we love each other. This church does a pretty good job at that. But Satan knows that if he can divide, he can destroy, and he will attempt to do it. Now, I'm not going to dismiss the final exhortations. We'll not take much time here. But God doesn't waste a word in, in opening greetings and salutations. Uh, also, in, in final greetings and instructions, there are things for us to learn. Look at what he says. And these are intensely personal. He's talking about individuals. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Um, Art Artemis, we don't know anything about, except he's mentioned here in this epistle. Tychicus, we know a little bit more about, not a whole lot about him. But what we see here is Paul's zeal and desire to see Titus again. He's his son in the faith. He misses him. And, and we should likewise long to see each other's faces again in, in the, the body of Christ. He says, I'm going to send Artemis and Tychicus. It appears here that they may continue some of the labors that Titus is doing. And then he wants Titus to come to him. Such is the fellowship between Paul and Titus. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos 
on their way, see to it that they lack nothing. Again, we don't know anything else about Zenos. We know quite a bit about this Apollos. He was a mighty preacher of the gospel, especially in Corinth. And it could be that the four of these were coming to deliver the letter, that the first two are going to remain to continue ministry, but that Zenos and Apollos have other, another charge where the Lord is sending them. And what he's saying is make provision for them to, along the way, see to it that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. He comes back to that theme. This is now for the third time in this last chapter of good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and, and not be unfruitful. And here you see the body life of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to each other. We are accountable to each other. We're accountable for each other. That's one thing I love about our little denomination. Uh, its imprint on diaconal ministry is huge for the size of the congregation. A hurricane comes through here and wreaks havoc. One phone call, there are people here cleaning up your yard, getting trees out of your yard from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We have a Presbytery crew and a committee and a denominational one. I mean, they're here as soon as they can get here. Um, it's one thing that I've loved to see, and it's developing and growing within our little denomination is an emphasis upon diaconal ministry. I want to tell you one little story, and then we're going to end the sermon of what this kind of thing looks like. Several years ago, a tornado, or several tornadoes came through where I live. Now, we don't get tornadoes because the mountains typically keep these systems from developing. And But there was a system that the meteorologists had fear in their eyes on television as they saw the depth of these low-pressure systems. They were making their way up Interstate 81, and I live a mile from Interstate 81. And they were making their way up through East Tennessee and, and up into Virginia. And they said, take cover, take cover now if you're in this area or that area or this one. We still had electricity. They said, take cover twice. My wife and I were in the basement as these things are, are coming through. We didn't have a single limb down in our yard. But then the power went out. We were laying in the bed. We began to hear sirens. The sirens were a little to our north and east, and I said something bad's happened in Glade Spring. Little community. Next morning I get up early. Storms are completely gone. Sun's coming up. Debris down everywhere. And I try to drive into Glade Spring to see where some of our families are. I'm not the pastor anymore, but it's still my church can't even get all the way in. And I'm stopped by a police officer who's not letting people unless they're residents in because of all the damage. I can see one of the elders' houses. This house predates that unfortunate campaign in the 1860s. Okay? The, the Union Army knocked down a tree in the yard of this that was set up. And I've seen that tree. <laughs> he lives in this house. I can get to where I can see his house. The roof's gone. 
And uh, as we were able to communicate, we learned that his son had let the insurance lapse. No insurance. This old house, roof is gone. Immediately, people in Kentucky come down and we're getting it under dry. I mean, immediately, that day, as soon as we can get there, getting it under dry. And I'll never forget what was going on. There was panic because there was no insurance to cover it. And one of this elder's daughters says, we need to sign up for FEMA. You know, we need to get, you know, the guy. I said, forget about the government. Forget about FEMA. And, and I don't want to forget about government and FEMA. Don't get me wrong. But I said, in this case, forget about it. Jesus is going to put a roof on your dad's house through his church. Word got out. No appeal. Just word got out because the church had maybe a thousand bucks in its diaconal fund, the local church. Within two weeks, there's $30,000 in the diaconal fund. And Jesus put a roof on their father's house. That's one thing I love about our little church. We take care of each other. That's exactly what Paul is telling to Titus here to instruct those believers on the island of Crete. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. And then he says, All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And he ends with a very brief benediction, but don't let it just end. Receive a benediction. Whenever you read it in the scriptures or whenever the pastor stands and lifts his hands, you receive that benediction. Grace be with you all. And with that, the epistle comes to an end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your word. We thank you for this little epistle of Titus that teaches us so much about what it means to be your church. Lord, that you would form these things in us, that you would send us our Titus, that you would raise up men to guard the church from false teaching, that you would guard the church from Satan and from us and our flesh, that you would humble us, even as we sometimes talk about matters where we have differences of opinion. And Lord, stir in us a, a sense of communion and fellowship and commitment and accountability to and for each other as we hear these instructions from your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.